0: So, when Shane only said, Oh, I'm going to put it on again if I wanted to do it, I just sort of jumped at the opportunity, just sort of thought it's an amazing, amazing experience. I thought it would be just to run down the length of Wales. And I knew the route would be good. I know that Shane would have taken us, you know, as mountainous route as he could. And I was just really excited about the possibility of doing it. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was everything I hoped for, really. I think that's it, yeah. And I think most people that run on the mountains and the fells do it just because they love being out there. That's the key thing. Um, you get a lot of very old fell runners because they just want to be out there and stay running out there
1: as long as they can. That, my friend, was Steve Birkinshaw, and this is the Inspirational Runners Podcast. Hey, everyone. Hope you're all well. My name's Robin Marsh, and I'm your host. So welcome to the podcast. We seem to be moving more and more towards the mountains over the last few months. The main reason is the lack of road racing that is going on at the minute, but we shan't complain as we have one of the UK's best orienteers on the podcast this week. A 17-hour Bob Graham, seven times winner of the OMM, winner of the infamous 2012 Dragon's Back race and former record holder of the Wainwrights. Not to mention author of one of the best mountain books out there, There's No Map in Hell. If only I had half the knowledge Steve Birkinshaw carries. It was great sitting down with him, been in awe of his achievements since seeing the Dragon's Back Race on YouTube a few years ago. So to sit here and get the opportunity to chat about it was pretty epic. Before we start I'd just like to give a shout out to Morn Mountain Adventures. If you're lucky enough to live in Ireland then check out our Facebook page where we offer a wide variety of hikes to suit all abilities. Really looking forward to the wild camping expeditions and two-day guided hikes where we provide top-of-the-range camping equipment such as North Face and Nordisk Mountain Tents. It's going to be an epic year in the hills, so if you're interested, check us out on Facebook at Morn Mountain Adventures. We are buzzing about the 2021 season, so make sure you don't miss out. Not to delay you any further, it's with great pleasure I give you Steve Birkinshaw. There's a lot of people that listen to the podcast, actually. You know, there's a lot of runners listening to the podcast who are sort of moving off the roads and things like that and, and starting into the mountains. And the one place I'm going to start with is the word orienteering. Give us a brief description, in your words, what orienteering actually means.
0: Gosh, it's a while since someone asked me about that. Um, so it's basically finding your way around a forest or a bit of fell with controls set locations and you have to find your way to these controls as quickly as possible. So for me, the best thing is the navigation can be really difficult and you're running through the roughest, toughest terrain and trying to do it as fast as possible. So it's, it's a great physical and mental exercise.
1: How how did you get your first exposure into that? Your first introduction?
0: Back when I was about five or six, the family started, or went to an event for the first time and I think I went around with my older brother and sister and we walked around a fairly simple course and we all enjoyed it and we carried on going to more events and then when I was about seven I started going out by myself uh, I was like you know said I don't want to go around with my brother and sister I want to do my own thing and I was absolutely useless uh, the navigation just didn't make any sense but super determined to get around so it'd be like a two kilometre course and I'd take two hours and come back in tears having only found two or three controls but I was determined to get better and you know gradually the navigation made more sense and I did improve so it was it was a great sort of learning experience of determination and showing that you can do it if you put your mind to it.
1: Was there a lot of like trial and error involved then?
0: Oh tons yeah I mean no one was telling me what to do probably wouldn't have listened anyway. Uh, so I just sort of working out myself, how everything worked, how the mat worked, all the symbols, how to use a compass, and gradually it all clicked.
1: Because you learn a lot. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually a quality manager, and I've learned a lot by things going wrong. You know, rather than somebody saying, you know, this is how you do something. And if it goes right all the time, you don't learn as much, do you? So when you're sort of fumbling your way through that, you get a a different level of understanding of what's going on.
0: Yeah, I agree entirely. I mean, you learn from your mistakes much better than someone tells you this is the way to do it. Go out and do it that way. Once you've made a mistake and worked out for yourself what the best way of doing something is, then that will stick forever forever. So it is, it is a, you know, it's not the fastest way of learning, but it's certainly the most sort of sticks with you the longest time.
1: Yeah, I've sort of, I don't know if this is right and I don't know if it's going to transfer. Hopefully it does. Um, originally I was a road runner. Um, I live here in the Mourn Mountains. It's right up my, I'm right at the foot of the Moor Mountains here. So I'm I'm forever in the Mourns. And because I was a road runner, you know, I've got my 4Runner 9.35 on my wrist here. I have a 9.45 there, and everything was GPS, GPS, GPS. Um, but I ran every direction I could, not following courses, but making courses and just getting lost in the moors because they're not that big. You know, you'll always yeah. come out the other side, plenty of food with you and the right kit, you're fine. Um, but then I knew I had to, at some stage, grab a Harvey map and start taking a look at it. And it all made sense to me because I knew – I knew the courses so well, and it was almost like reverse engineering for me, um, which helped me then when I got my compass to try and look. I'm not saying this is the way you should go, by the way, <laughs> um, and I'm hoping it does transfer across to mountain ranges that I don't know. You know that there's that in the back of my head at the minute because when I get the morns and I get the maps and you, when you you know exactly in your mind, it's embedded in your head exactly what you're looking at. Um, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing because the modern day people are starting to lose the art of map reading, aren't they, with the whole GPS systems that are about?
0: Yeah, definitely. There's sort of fewer people have that skill, If you say. They'll just sort of follow the GPS. And yeah, it's it's a great skill to have. And what you're doing makes sense. I mean, often I will look at a map. It's not quite the same, but I look at a map and be- somewhere I've not been and get a sort of a feel of the Of the countryside before I go out there and getting just getting getting out there and getting used to the terrain and then looking at the map was probably a good way of, of putting them together. Might not work for everyone, but it sounds like it was working for you, which is great.
1: Yeah, the theory can be difficult sometimes until you're actually out there and you're actually looking and you're looking at the contours, you know, kind of steep that climb is, or you're looking at that river and that wall. And it's, it does, you can sort of piece it all together. So seven years, seven years of age, I wish somebody had <laughs> handed me a map and <laughs> a compass at that, that stage. How did that transfer then into racing? What age were you when you took your first race?
0: Um, so I sort of started or carried on orienteering competitively because it is like a competitive sport that's, you know, there's world champs and stuff. And I was really keen until like mid twenties at and- of wanting to do well and getting there, sort of the British team, I never quite managed that, but I was training hard. Um, and I started doing some fell races as well, just to sort of pit myself against the fastest runners and see how I was against them and just to improve my sort of training and my speed. So, for a while, I was doing both, and then I guess I realized I was never going to get much further in the orienteering, and I was enjoying the fell running a lot more. I started doing longer and longer races. So I started doing all the Lakeland classic races, things like the Walsdale and the Enidale fell race, and loving those and like doing quite well and thinking, yeah, I can get better. Just wanted to go further and further because obviously I had some sort of natural ability to maybe run for long distances or push myself hard enough so I could do well in these longer races.
1: You sound very, so, very competitive, extremely competitive. Yeah. <laughs> When I'm out there. Even even towards yourself, I suppose, you know, even though it sounds like even though you're competing against, you know, whoever's whoever in the top three there and you're competing against those guys, it sounds like the most the person that you're racing against the most is yourself.
0: Yeah, I think that's it. I always set myself particular challenges and see how hard I can push myself. So, you know, when I'm out racing, I will always race really hard and I'm the rest of the time i'm not particularly competitive it's just like i say right i'm going to do that race and do it hard and push myself to the limits so i do have that i guess i have that ability to sort of push myself hard maybe competitive ability i suppose or...
1: one, one thing that is on my radar and i've got all the kit <laughs> i've got all the kit and i haven't even entered the race yet like is the omm you'd won that seven years you'd won that you've won that title seven times haven't you
0: Yes, yeah, so I've done the well, won the elite on that seven times. I've done it probably nearly 30 times. I just did it when I was 16 with my dad. Wow. Uh, and he hated it and I loved it. Um, so, yeah, seven, yeah, seven. I think I've done the elite class 20 times. So, it's it's a really tough, tough race. But I've enjoyed going over to the Morns doing the Morn Mountain. Marathon. That's a great
1: race. Yeah, that's class. I've just, I've
0: just done it once, but you know, it's really, really nice, low key enjoyable weekends
1: it's quite similar though isn't it for people that don't know the MMM what is the structure of that
0: so it's two long days in the mountains finding checkpoints on your way uh with a, an overnight camp so you have to take all your your tent all your food with you camp overnight and then do the same thing do another long day the second day uh, it's always the end of October so <laughs> the weather is normally pretty bad which is part of the fun or the hardship of it you've got to not just be able to move fast but be a good mountain person be able to cope with the bad weather whatever it throws
1: so kit must be a key thing obviously in the OMM you want to move fast you want to move over terrain you don't want to be tired is that one of the key things is weight
0: yeah exactly so it's it's a balance so you want to get really light kit, so you're moving fast but as I say it's it's often bad weather so if you push it too hard you know i know people that have gone super lightweight waterproof and the weather turned rubbish and they got cold and they had to sort of give up because they got too cold so it's that balance between the lightweight and and actually sort of having the suitable kit for being able to cope with bad weather
1: yeah, comfort versus weight, I suppose. So lead, exactly, yeah. Leading up to an event like that, then are you keeping your eyes on the weather to try and suss what you can get away with?
0: Yeah, definitely. So I'll have two lots of kit, or maybe three lots of kit, or at least three three waterproofs. So I'll have like my super light kit if the weather's good, and if the weather's a bit bad, I'll have a you know a better waterproof, um, better waterproof over trousers, and then I'll have like a, a you know big decent waterproof for if the weather's going to be really really bad so uh it was definitely looking at the weather forecast and again i've got like a lightweight stove if the weather's going to be fine but if the weather's going to be bad i'll put a heavier one in so yeah watching out for that
1: do you relish bad weather or good weather when you're out there does it make you more competitive if the weather's bad thinking you've got a bit of an upper hand on your competitors
0: yeah i always relish bad weather um <laughs> i always think that if i, I can i can cope there may be some of the fast, super fast guys that that haven't got that ability to cope with whatever the weather. So I always think of myself. You know, the worse the weather, the more an advantage, more likely I am to do well. And then obviously as well, the if the cloud comes in and the mist and the rain and navigation becomes harder. And hopefully, my years of experience will help out in that aspect as well.
1: Have you made any real blunders then when you're navigating through that?
0: Um nothing massive so i've lost the odd five or ten minutes um no like big like hour-long mistakes but you know at the top end that can be the difference between coming first and second so there's a couple of times that i you know could have maybe won but didn't because i made a stupid mistake so it's annoying when that happens but it's happened the other way around as well where one where someone else has made a mistake. so
1: it has to be part and parcel of, of that type of race though doesn't it has exactly. To be. Yeah. So yeah, it's all part exactly. of the sport. Like, can you think of those well, seven? Exactly. Yeah. Can you think of those seven seven wins? Then was there any of them were really neck and neck that you just sort of pipped them at the post? I suppose all of them.
0: <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of close ones. Um, I think all of those were actually sort of won by at least five minutes. But there's one or two two that were pipped at the post and lost in 10 second. Like. Right? someone overtook us about three someone overtook me and my partner in the last you know three or four kilometers which is always a bit gutting when that happens but you know these things happen
1: and in a partnership as well it's a totally different thing as well isn't it because you know you're bound to have highs and lows together it must be really bad when you both got a low coming on like it's like let's just go home get a bag of chips and go home get a pint um but there must be you know it must be like at, at some times throughout that, you must be like carrying each other.
0: Yeah, exactly. You always, as you say, you normally have a bad port, you know, bad section and your partner's sort of helping you through. So they'll probably take over the navigation or in extreme things, like start taking your rucksack so that they're carrying too and you're not carrying anything um, or just, you know, you're sh- sheltering behind them, just focusing on their steps and not thinking about anything else. So yeah, you look after each other because it's it's a team thing. I never mentioned that earlier, but it's a team thing. So the whole thing is getting you and your partner around as fast as you can. So looking after each other in any way, so that you you do that. But as you say if you're both having a bad spell at the same time, it can be really bad. <laughs> yeah. The navigation. Well, yeah, you know when you're so tired and you can't navigate, and if both of you haven't struggling to navigate, then it becomes <laughs> it becomes really difficult.
1: Extremely frustrating, I'm sure. How do, you pick, yeah. how do you pick your partners? I'm sure like if Steve put on social media, I'm look, looking for a partner this weekend. <laughs> you yeah. have like a thousand <laughs> messages come across. Like, um, How do you select each other? Does it just, it's like.
0: Yeah, it's sort of, I guess, amongst the top end, It's a fairly small field that people that you know that will be able to run well for sort of seven hours on a Saturday, seven hours on a Sunday over the roughest terrain. So it's sort of. Yeah, it's sort of, there's a a limited number of people you ask. And you normally, if you've run with someone and done well, you normally run with them unless there's, you know, unless one of you says, I'm not fit enough. And then you have to try and think of someone else to find. It's difficult. Um, And sometimes it doesn't match quite perfectly. And one person's faster than the other. Um, But, yeah, it's, it's, it's being honest with each other and saying, you know, I'm running well at the moment. How about you? Do you reckon you'll be sort of be able to keep up with me? Or a few times, you know, I've hardly been able to keep up with someone else. They've been just too fast for me. Um, so yeah, that honesty of knowing how well you're running at that point.
1: What do you think are the biggest mistakes that people make during the OMM? <sighs> Apart from picking a bad partner. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, like the key. Well, no, that is the key thing. I mean, having a partner. And they don't have to be the best partner in the world, but you have to have the same goals. So you need to, you know, whatever it is you want to be able to finish, you you know, either agree to try and win or agree to try and finish a particular course or just enjoy a day out on the hills. Um, So, yeah, the biggest mistake is the wrong partner. Other than that, it's probably people getting lost, which is a hard thing as well, or getting too cold and wet and not looking after themselves when the weather turns really bad.
1: There's quite a few new people listening on the podcast now who are new to the mountains. The mountains have actually exploded during COVID. It's like it really has. and Nobody being able to get anywhere. Um, yeah. There's just hundreds and hundreds of droves of people moving to the mountains. Um It's quite a big risk. Um, I'm actually a mountain guide in the morn, so we do help and support a lot of people and try and train people as much as possible on what kit to bring and things like that. Because even the morns, even though it's a very small cascade, it can become very dangerous very quickly. Um, but quite a lot of times I get asked about compasses, you know, what type of compass to buy, what are the things to look out for. Is there any sort of things that they should be aware of when purchasing a compass and how they can throw you out?
0: Um, I think compasses... You know, generally, any ones you can buy are pretty reliable. Um, so, I guess the key thing is being able to use it properly um, and also making sure that it's not near like, your phone or something stupid like that, which affects the north arrow. Um, you know, when you're orienteering, we have like particular special sort of compasses that settle a bit quicker. But if you're out just walking in the mountains, That's not a key issue because, you know, you've got time to take a proper compass bearing or orientate the map correctly. So there isn't really, I wouldn't say much you can go wrong with a compass. You just got to make sure, have that ability to use it and that confidence.
1: Well, that's the, that's the key thing, isn't it? The more you use it, the more experience you've got is having the the confidence (laughs) where you go. go. And I remember when I started out and I was on GPS um, and I changed my watch and what I didn't wreck, I got, stuck in a clag like on top of um a a local mountain sleeve lambigan oh yeah and my new watch had been locked into north (laughs) so i didn't know i didn't notice the change we we almost went down the wrong face of the mountain which was very (laughs) it was a sheer drop only i caught on to what was going on and that was a real lesson for me that was when i just stopped like simple thing um i thought i was tracking north when i wasn't because when the cloud yeah. when the cloud comes down, you can't see two feet in front of your face. It's very disorientating, and it's important in those times that you are able to pull your compass out and you've got your map, and it can lead you. Because electronics can fail; <laughs> they can go wrong.
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean, I've done strange things where I've, you know, run run along, run round for about half an hour, and ended up in exactly the same point. And you think, how on earth did that happen? And at that time, you think, right, I've got to get the compass out. And I've got to make sure I follow my compass bearing because that's the key thing at that point. Um, it's so disorientating when the cloud comes in and you've just got to have that confidence to say, yeah, the compass will take me in the right place. I've just got to believe in it.
1: Because you second guess yourself, don't you? Even though you know you're in the yeah. right place, as soon as that date starts creeping in, it's hard to let it go sometimes.
0: Yeah, you know, exactly, yeah. Um, you know, it's, you, you say the doubt creeps in, you, you get a bit worried, you're a bit scared, everything goes a bit wrong and you think, yeah. It is, it is, can be dangerous, get dangerous quite quickly. So at that point, yeah, that's when you need to say, right, the Trumpus is working and I'm just gonna follow it and be brave and it, it takes you out in the right place.
1: The worst case scenario, it stops you walking around in circles. <laughs> at least you can walk in a yes. straight line. You're at the very basic level. And um, we are lucky exactly. in the Mons, it's such a small cascade. And you'll always, we, we're obviously very lucky. We've got the wall. Um the more yeah, walls. So it always it yeah. always brings you back. Um yes. do you prefer do you prefer the longer stuff? Then we talked about, you know, how the COVID sort of situations has changed things slightly. And last year we've seen loads of FKTs happening across the big rounds. You know, likes of Damian Hall and John Kelly and Beth Pascal and you know, everybody was with well, all the races cancelled, a lot of people were turning to the rounds. Do you prefer those sort of longer distances? I know you've done the Bob Graham, was it in, 2005 yeah
0: Yeah. that's right yeah yeah um i love those sort of long rounds uh a real test of um, its ability to move for that length of time in the in the mountains um and you know things a lot of things can go wrong in them so it's it's a real test of you getting the eating and the drinking right and the right equipment as well um and being able to move for that length of time fast over the roughest terrain is always a you know a good test so yeah they're good fun although they take a lot out of you i remember when i did do the bog in 2005 i hadn't done a lot of stuff before then and you know i did a fast time well it was fast in those days like it's 17 hours 17 hours, yeah but um there's been a lot faster than that now obviously but um it took me i started running again after a couple of weeks and it was much too soon. And then a couple of months later, my old legs seized up, and it took me about four or five months to properly recover. That, that's
1: so the worst. Is, that's the worst small. thing, like, isn't it? You think your legs feel okay, but there is fatigue in there that you're not. Fully aware of, yeah, right? exactly. And you need that to come out. What What do you think are the key aspects of having a successful run? I know you have done sem- seventeen hours and nine minutes. Like it's amazing when you think of Billy Bland's time. You know all that. Yes, thirty six. Whenever years ago is about thirty eight years ago now. I suppose, um, his record held for thirty six years. Like, but like he had none of these gadgets. You know what I mean? Just pure grit and determination. I suppose.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um. And long, long days in the, in, the, in the fells. I mean, I don't know if you've seen or talked to Billy, but I, I've talked to him quite a few times. And he used to go out for you know, three hours every evening after work and stuff in the summer. Uh, so he, he's just had that ability to move fast over rough terrain because he does it the whole time. Um, and he'd obviously know the route perfectly because he'd been out and wrecked it all loads and loads of times. And in the end, you've still got, however good the gadgets are these days, you still got to go out and do that 66 miles. You've still got to do that 8,000 meters of climb. Um, it's really hard. Um, and, you know, the gadgets don't really help. Well, like they make things easier, but, you know, it's still yeah. a big, long, long day out
1: you're pushing it on the limit the whole time like aren't you when you're trying to drive for a time like that i know the target's under 24 hours but when you're trying to get every second out of what you're doing like fuel has to be a key aspect to that
0: yeah exactly yeah i mean even billy himself was like going really really well for you know 11 hours and then suddenly his fuel level got too low and he had to stop for like five minutes and just get bit more fuel on and then he could start finish again. So yeah, it's
1: what type of it's things that balance. What type of things would you feel on, on on something like that?
0: Everyone's different. I would always have a like try and eat some normal food like you know soup or pasta or I quite had like rice pudding or tin peaches. And then I'd I would also those would be like when you meet the road support, but I'd also be having something like gels or I don't think there were gels in 2005, so I may be having Kendall mint cake on the, <laughs> on when I'm actually doing doing the sections and stuff like that. So, yeah, a bit of fast energy stuff and then some of the sort of slow release energy stuff at the road crossings.
1: I, I always try and think to myself, you know, what would I eat on a, an ordinary day when I wasn't running? You know, when I was just exactly. walking about or sitting down at my desk at work? Um, You know, you eat quite a lot of food <laughs> throughout a day, an ordinary day. Well, you need that plus the thousands of calories that you're burning as well to try and maintain that ed- yeah. energy level. Very difficult thing exactly. to dial in though, isn't
0: it? It is, it is. No, I think you're right. And I think as well, people think just having sweet stuff. I mean, if you're sitting at your desk and eating sweet stuff all day, you probably end up feeling sick. So you do want the mixture of stuff because that is what you normally eat. You have what you normally eat and then a bit extra calories to cope for the you know, what you're doing on that time, all the extra gels and stuff to cope with the distance you're running. But you know, people wonder why they feel sick often when they've just been eating gels for sixteen hours. And it's not really surprising.
1: It's like that Christmas morning buzz. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and you yes, open up all exactly. that chocolate and you're halfway through a box of quality streets and you don't feel great like um Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah.
1: And then we wonder why we're feeling bad on the you know, halfway through the round
0: yeah <laughs> that's right so yeah i would definitely on some of these long rounds i will always you know and most people do these days they have like proper food as well they'll be eating pasta when they get to the road support
1: it's important to have a variety of food isn't it because you don't really know what you're going to want you know it might sound yeah. good and you've done that in training but in tra- the training you don't really get to go that far i suppose you know you talk about it, three hours every evening or if you're lucky on the weekend you'll get an eight or nine hours shot and um, that's not 17 or 18 hours
0: exactly right yeah now i'd say that that's it is hard you know i've i've messed up my nutrition on some of these long things and you think well it's not surprising because the only time you ever do that is on the long bound itself you're never trying you never try the nutrition another time because you're not out for 17 hours you're only out as you say for eight hours so it's a hard thing to get right
1: was it purely mountain running that you were doing then to get ready for that recce and, and running the course and things like that? You weren't doing any gym work or anything to try and build your body and strength?
0: No. Um, particularly when I was in 2005, no, I wasn't doing any gym work at all. I would just be out running, doing a bit of cycling as well. Um, But yeah, I've always been one for just going out and enjoying the running rather than stuff in the gym. Although I have these last couple of years, I've started doing a lot more of the core exercises. Just seems that seems to help as I'm getting a bit older.
1: When was it that Killian came over? Killian came over in 2018 to have a go at bullies. Like that was pretty, pretty amazing, not event, but go at the round, I suppose. You were part of that as well, weren't you?
0: Yeah, it was quite interesting because I was sort of rung up beforehand and sort of said, you know, do you want to help? And I was a bit worried. I, would get put him, I was put on the fourth leg because the hope that I could keep up with him at that point, although I didn't. I actually got dropped a couple of times. and had to miss <laughs> out a few summits because even even after ten hours, he was going really well. But it was quite funny as well because I we all had a link to his tracker, so I knew exactly where I, where he was. And then you're know, watching all the social media and. You know, there was all this sort of speculation about how he was doing and whether he was up and down a schedule. And you know, I could have just said at any point, Oh yeah, he's, you know, thirty minutes up. But we were told not to. So it was just watching it, laughing at all these comments that people were speculating when I knew exactly what was happening. So it was it was quite funny.
1: He's an amazing talent though, isn't he? He must have been amazing to see him drift down those fells.
0: Yeah, no, he's he's brilliant. we um, say amazing talent and a nice guy. And he just he just loves running doesn't he um, you know it's that's the good thing about him he doesn't sort of you know he has to, it's his job to to cope with all the media stuff but in the end he actually just loves running and loves being out there and I think he'd probably not want to do all the media stuff except that you know he has to because it's part of his job but yeah it, as I say it was nice to chat with him for a couple of hours while I was out there
1: yeah it's very important though I do think it's easier whilst we're in the mountains um than a lot of people that i've interviewed on the roads because the roads can get i was going to say serious there as if the mountains isn't serious but <laughs> um, <laughs> it's very important not to lose the reason why you start to begin with
0: i think that's it yeah and i think most people that run on the mountains and the fells do it just because they love being out there that's the key thing um you get a lot of very old fell runners because they just want to be out there and stay running out there as long as they can and so maybe maybe that's it most of the time it's sort of not for money you know people aren't doing these races and to to get rich it's because they enjoy it um so i suppose that's sort of a, a side of it as well no one or very few people make a living out of running
1: it has to be a deep passion though doesn't it like because it hurts <laughs> you know it's painful like you put you strip yourself <laughs> down to nothing left like and you still got another 30 miles to go like um one race that comes into mind which was a bit of folklore history at one point was the dragon's back so in 1992 you know they had this amazing event and it was a bit of a myth almost <laughs> that it had even happened yeah, yeah. you know to run down the 200 miles down the the spine of wales over some of the hardest elevation and more the descending. <laughs> We always talk yeah. about elevation but the de- is the this de- when you're in the mountains you know it's the descending that hurts like but that was phenomenal in 1992 and you had the likes of Helen Whitaker Well Helen came first didn't she Yes So it was 20 years later <laughs> Yeah it took 20 years it wouldn't happen now obviously because the the scene has changed so much But 20 years later then in 2012 they decided to run the race again What drew you to that
0: um, I actually knew a few of the guys that were there in 1992. Um, I knew Helen and Martin a bit, um, not at the time. But there were a couple of guys that I think were second and third. I knew at the time they were doing it. And I was just like astonished um, that they could run that sort of distance, 30, 40 miles every day for five days. So when Shane Oley said, oh, I'm going to put it on again, if I wanted to do it, I'd sort of jumped at the opportunity. Just sort of thought it's an amazing amazing experience and you thought it would be just to run down the length of Wales. And I knew the route would be good. I know that Shane would have taken us, you know, as mountainous route as he could. And I was just really excited about the possibility of doing it. Um so yeah, it was it was everything I hoped for, really.
1: And more even. Um Yes. Do you think so it was was it Rob Baker? that was sort of hot on your heels the whole way?
0: Exactly, yeah. I mean, I was with Rob on and off for those five days. Um, so I think the first day we ran the first half together. Second day we ran the first half together. The third day we were together just about the whole way. Um, but I'd got a bit of a lead by that point because the first and second day I got like 15 minute lead over him. Um, and the fourth day I set off in front of him and just didn't see him all day. And then he he had a bad day. So I had about a two-hour lead going into the final day. So the final day, we just went around together and just enjoyed it as much as you can when you're completely knackered. And (laughs) I had a bit of tendinitis up my leg. So I was in quite a lot of pain on the descent, as you say. They're often the worst. Um, But it was sort of enjoyable. Um, enjoying not having to push it, just having a nice day out.
1: You forget about all the pain, like, don't you, after the race. Do you think it was important having Rob in the race for yourself and the time that you did?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's great to have someone pushing you. Um, you wouldn't want to win in a long race like that with no one anywhere near you. It's because you'd think, what, you know, what's the point? You know, I could easily win or whatever. So the fact that Rob was there pushing me, making me work really hard, definitely made it a good, a good long week. Uh, you know, a real challenge. And as you say, all I can remember now of the dragon's back is the good times. I can't remember any of the pain at all. Um,
1: <laughs> there was plenty of it.
0: There was plenty of it, but that's part of the the beauty of you know running in the mountains is there is pain, but you just forget it, and all I remember is the nice things. And it's the same whenever I've done long stuff. Um, it might take a long time. Sometimes it takes six months for the pain sort of forgotten, but eventually it all goes and you just have the great, brilliant memories of long days in the hills.
1: With absolutely amazing people as well. I know in 2012, the likes of Nicky Spinks um, was there. We talked about Helen. She came back, but one person that stood out for me was Wendy Dodds. You know, she had been yes. in the original one in, in 1992. Um, actually, she she actually came first female pair, didn't she? I think in 1992. In
0: 1992, yeah, that's right, yeah.
1: And she came back 61 years of age. And if anybody, yeah. like, I don't know if it's near 50,000 feet of climbing and 200 miles across the spine, down the spine of Wales, like, it's 61 years of age. Like, we, t- we talk about gender inspiration, but you can forget about yeah. gender inspiration in that scenario, you know the determination when you, if you ever watched the video on YouTube of the dragon's back of 2012, where Steve wins it, by the way, just in case anybody didn't pick up on that, um, <laughs> you know, to see her trunching through there, no matter what. And every time you seen her, she was so determined, like, to come across that finish line and then apologize to everybody for keeping them up. <laughs> it's like,
0: yeah, it's amazing at the finish. We were all waiting for her and people say, Oh, she'll drop out. And, you know, Everyone else said, no, no, Wendy doesn't drop out. She will just carry on. We know she's going to finish. However long it takes, she's going to be there. So it was no surprise when she sort of walked up in the dark to get to the final castle. I would have dropped. A big load of people went out and cheered her as well. It was great.
1: Yeah, like 50% of the people that did enter that that year did drop. You know, it's a huge dropout. Like if I... If you thought at 61 years of age you could tackle something like that within that time, like you'd be pretty happy with the position that you'd be in.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. No, she's very, very impressive.
1: No, there are, it's something about the mountains that draws us back and draws us there and keeps us there. You know, there's there's certain people in the Hill and Dales race that we have here. Um, I'm 45 years of age and they're over 70 and they're beating me in the race. And right, <laughs> wow. Um, I don't know if they're good or I'm bad. I, don't know. <laughs> I haven't worked out which one is which yet. But it's very inspiring, you know. You know, When I started running, I was around 35, midlife crisis. My first midlife crisis, should I say. You know, I thought, oh, I'll get a good five years here. You know, get all my good times and all before I get too old. But I just had never yeah. come anywhere near my potential. But when you see these people that are over 70 and mid-70s running up and down like Sleeve Donard race or and things like that, it's really inspiring to think, you know, that keep an active like that as long as long as you don't wreck yourself in the process
0: <laughs> well exactly now they all seem to be really yeah fit and healthy don't they these people and it is an inspiration i hope i'm still running up some of these races here when i'm 70. it'd be great if i could but yeah i'll just keep going as long as i can
1: because there's two sides that so we heard the word mental health being mentioned over and over again especially during the COVID situation well, we all actually realise how much we do struggle, you know, being closed indoors and not having that social activity and being outside. But when you're mountain running, it's not just a physical aspect, you know. I was a manager in my job, and it really helped me de-stress. I used to love it on a Thursday night after work and the sunshine, and you're going up to kill yourself on the Hill and Dale's race. Yes. Um, <laughs> but it just like purged,
0: yeah, just
1: purged it all out some reason you know even though it was a bit more pain a bit more effort there was just something about you know those 10 seconds that you had at the top of the fell you know and the sun was going down and it was calm and then you get down and that whole community buzz and just for those that one hour a week even i was slow by the way it was only a 30 minute race but (laughs) (laughs) Um, but it really there is something about the mountains even in your training that you know the mental aspect of it to me is more beneficial than the physical
0: no i agree i mean i i often get stressed and worried about stuff and so particularly at the moment i just have to make sure i go out every day just for a run it gets to like one or two o'clock in the afternoon and i think right i've just got to go out i've just got to get out and relax and then i come back and i'm happy again so yeah it's it's so important for me and i, I feel sorry i'm but people that don't live in somewhere nice as this that struggle to get out or you know if you're in the middle of a city it must be really hard so I'm so lucky to be well I am up in the Lake District fells
1: See the problem is you've been exposed to it as well so it makes it harder to come away from it you know when you've yeah. had that awareness and you you've had that feeling sensation I I was um I was actually in a race coast to coast it was called so the west coast of Ireland this is a bit crazy now that, talk about it to the east coast of Ireland. what's crazy about it is it was the first time I was in the Mons was in that race and oh, I, wow. I live at the foot of the Mons um, and I just it just even though they were there um, we lived in their shadows <laughs> it was that close <laughs> for some reason I don't know what it was you know it just never triggered I didn't know where to go I suppose and there was none of my friends were doing it and it was during this race coast to coast that I had to actually race up through a place called um, Hares Gap and across the Brandy Pad and up Donard. And it just, even though it was the very end of the race, it just, there was a total mind shift in just one race. Like, wow, I cannot believe, you know, 35 years of age. I've never been up <laughs> here before. I've just raced across from it. I, I remember sitting in the Brandy Pad and pulled out a Crunchy out of my bag because I was <laughs> wrecked. just to get me up donard like and just sat there down looking um along ben crom and it was a real mental shift happened in that one moment i can think back to that very specific moment when that happened and and people just don't have people haven't been lucky enough you know to have that awareness or i think more and more through the whole covid situation that people are starting to look for that especially when we're not being able to travel abroad and people are starting to realize what we have on our doorstep beautiful parts of the country like so the challenge the challenge doesn't really like it doesn't i was going to say it doesn't get much bigger than the dragon's back it was actually meant to be my race this year um but i picked up an injury so i've made the wise decision i've made a wise decision actually to park it and put on the shelf for now until rather than rush my training because that's generally what i do and i suffer through the second half yes you can do it and yes you can get to the finish (laughs) yes you suffer twice as that you're already going to suffer when you're in good condition so yeah it's not it's not advisable to go into races of that magnitude i was going to say it doesn't get much bigger than dragon's back until you come to the wainwrights so we had Paul Tierney on the podcast last week, um, which is going to be released this evening, actually. So for those, one thing we didn't talk about is where, because a lot of people have heard of the Wainwrights. Even my mum had to- <laughs> heard of the Wainwrights. Nice. But when I was telling her, Paul Tierney, you won't know. Is the Wain- Oh, I know about the Wainwrights. Yeah. Um, there's a book written about it. Where did that originate from?
0: What, doing my sort of thought of going around the Wainwrights?
1: Well, I was coming to that next, but where did the actual Wainwrights come from?
0: Oh. The Wainwrights themselves. So it was Alfred Wainwright that wrote books in the 50s and the 60s. Um, so he we went up all 214 fells and we put them in seven different books. Uh, so they're named like after the Northern fells and Northwestern fells. And each book has about 30 other fells in. And people, have since he's written that book, because they sold about 2 million copies of these books, and since he's written wow. them, people have started to refer to these tops as Wainwrights, and they've become really popular, as you know. Um, so people spend years going up, all 214 of them, uh, ticking them off in their books, uh, and it's, it's, you know, loads and loads of people in the Lake District are doing that. So it's a really popular thing.
1: But, like, as you say, people take years and years and years to tick them off. So, <laughs> where are we going to next? Like, um, so where, yeah. <laughs> where where did that seed come from then, to actually try and compete them in one go?
0: So a couple of people did it earlier in 1985, 1986. So there was Alan Heaton did it in about ten days, and then famous Joss Naylor did it in just over seven days in 1986, was it or 1985? One of the two. Because uh, he's
1: phenomenal, like isn't he? Like, he? He is. He is a phenomenal. Athlete, like.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and he's still going in his eighties. It's a great inspiration for everyone. So yeah, his, that sort of inspired me. Someone sort of mentioned the idea, put it in my head, and I thought, yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> it's a stupid idea, but I thought, yeah. you know.
1: It's a very difficult thing, like, isn't it? Because it's a huge commitment. Like, like, yeah. like, when does that planning start from? Because you of most. People are going to take something like that around June, you know, around the longest days of the year. you got as much sunlight yeah. as possible. When does your planning start for something like that?
0: I started about 18 months before thinking, oh, I'll do it the previous year. And I started thinking, you know, I've got Josh's route that he did, but I thought it didn't look perfect. It didn't look optimal. So I spent three or four months every night looking at his route, trying to find a better way. And I did. It was like about five or six hours faster than his, I think. Uh, So once I would got that, I started going out and wrecking all the bits I didn't know. Because I live in the Lake District anyway, I know most of the tops. So there's a few extra ones I've not been up. I wrecked and tried to find the best routes. But the year before, the first year I was planning to do it, I had a few niggles and I thought, there's no way I can do this. So I delayed it a year. Uh, which was a good thing because it gave me more chance to recce it um, and then yeah it was just a matter of finding all the support people I knew I'd need loads of people to help me and get getting fit and then just going and doing it
1: when, when you're when you're looking at his course and you're looking at the maps and you're looking for better routes and things like that what type of things are you looking for like when you're looking at a map because um, after listening to the poll last week, you know, I pulled my map out on the table for a couple of hours. Like, and I was, we have the Dennis Rankin round over here, oh yeah um, which is a great round. And I've wrecked, hopefully I haven't cheated, but I've wrecked it like mad on the GPS. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm a real Strava stalker. Like, you know, we've got Gavin Burns right. there who done it in 14 hours. And I've got his, I'm going to have to edit this out. Like, but <laughs> I've, got, I've got his <laughs> course on my watch, but you obviously wouldn't do it. You can't, you wouldn't do it um, on the day without your map and compass. Like um, it wouldn't be right to do it on the GPS. But by wrecking it so much, it is just getting, I'm just learning the course and learning the course, you know, and if you have a nice clear evening, you really can put your map in your back pocket. Um, Now we're lucky that we can live here to do that. But when I was looking at the map and I was thinking like, because one thing that Paul had mentioned during it, you know, and he's a very humble guy, Paul, Oh yeah, And he didn't even like to say that he's got the record because Steve had done all the work. <laughs> you know, I've gone on the back. He's, he's sort of piggybacked on Steve's course and Steve had done a great job and, and getting the right amount of... Because it's not just a matter of running from the quickest route. You have to think, don't you, about... You need recovery yeah. as well. You can't just go up the stiffest climbs and the, and the fastest route from A to B. You have to really get a good mixture of what's going on.
0: You do, and you have to work out where you're going to meet your like, support vehicle and where you want to sleep and split it into sort of suitable length sections and also find that, as you say, it's not just the shortest route or the fastest route. Sometimes you just want slightly better running that might take slightly longer. So it is it is a, a massive challenge to work all that out. Um, but, yeah, and Paul is just great. You know, he, he went and chatted to me a year before he did it. And I said, yeah, go for it. Um, and, and, you know, it was, it was he's always been really, really nice about the fact that I helped him. So, you know, you know a great guy.
1: What are you looking at in the, on the map, coming back to that question? Because I was looking at the map and I couldn't work out any difference of how I was going to make it any quicker doing the Dennis rank and like.
0: Yeah, it's, I guess it's years of experience looking at the climbs, looking at, where the paths are, where there aren't paths, knowing what the terrain's like, because sometimes you can get stuck in some really bad bracken or heather. All of the experience of running on the fells for 30 years helps, um, and then going out and trying the bits. So it's a mixture of the map and going out and sort of knowing what, um, running through the terrain. Yeah, it's, it's complicated
1: yeah it's like it's a huge 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 investment isn't it like when you're going in to do something like this it's like paul was saying you know when he was going through it like you can't think about what's going to happen after the fact you know like paul was mentioning you know well i could be injured and i could be out for three months or six months that's the type of commitment you're putting into this you know you can't have anything planned (laughs) after this because you don't know how much this is going to impact you
0: Exactly. I mean, I'm the same. I sort of said, right, I did it in June. I said, right, I'm not going to book any races for the rest of the year because I know there's a potential that I might be injured. So I don't want to have that sort of worry of future races in my head. I'm going to push it to the limit on this thing and see how hard and fast I can do it. So just the focus for the year is that one one round.
1: What do you think was the the biggest mistake that you made going into that, apart from doing it?
0: <laughs> I don't think I make any mistakes going into it, particularly because I had, I reckon I got good root, I had a great support team. The only mistake I guess I made was I managed to get really bad blisters from about the third day onwards. And that slowed me down loads because I was getting a lot of treatment on it just to try and make sure they didn't get any worse. It is a mistake, but I don't know how I would have avoided it because yeah. um, I was trying to keep my feet dry. Trying to change my shoes and my socks as soon as much as, often as I could, but you know it's one of those things that happened. It was a hot, humid week, and my feet were sweating loads. And I think that was sort of the issue. There's nothing you can do about that in that respect. That's what um, I was going
1: to say. Is conditions conditions are huge when you're taking on something like this, aren't they?
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, most people would love a hot dry week and it was good in most respects but I think it was just that bit too hot for me because I quite like it sort of on the cooler side and that may have caused the extra sweating in my feet and the blisters um, but yeah you could have the other way around I mean Paul had some pretty horrible days he probably told you like one horrible night um, and some of the days when I was out with him it was a bit drizzly and wet and not ideal weather but yeah, in a week, in the latest week, you expect to get some bad days.
1: So, what was, what was it feel like then when you actually completed that? Because it's and you actually broke um, Joss's record then. Like that must have been, it must be like a big purge as well. You know, there's 18 months in the making there, you know, to all of a sudden to actually bang and touch that wall.
0: Yeah, it's an amazing feeling actually. Because I guess for last day, I knew I was going to break the record, and there were more and more people coming out to cheer me. And sort of each last each top was like another one done. So I got to Cat Bell, which is the last top, and like running in with like 50, 100 people running in beside me and a couple of hundred people at the Moot Hall waiting for me to finish. And as you say, 18 months of effort, a week of like a lot of pain, a lot of struggling, a lot of suffering, but some good times. And it was really emotional sort of touching that wall. My family was there. It was sort of yeah an emotional end to a brilliant
1: week how was it then when paul broke your record was it a bit a bittersweet because you know one thing he broke your record and as paul would paul would quite openly say and very humbly say you know your work that you've done has really built a foundation for people that, so you're almost a part of people's own adventure i suppose
0: yeah i was bittersweet i mean i was with paul and I was so happy for him that he broke it. He'd obviously put so much effort into it, but there, deep inside, there's a part of you. So I haven't got the record anymore. And it's a bit <laughs> sad, but, yeah. Yeah. it couldn't have happened to a nicer person breaking the record. So I was chuffed for and his, you know his support team, and he was he was raising money for you know his friend of his that had died recently. So it was it was great, and I wish I'd been there at the finish, but I was away working that. That day in Nottingham, so I missed the finish, which was a bit sad.
1: But it's one of those records, though, that only great people are going to hold. Do you know what I mean? It's not like any fly in the wall is going to turn up here and, and break the <laughs> wine rights record. You know, everybody, everybody is going to have to go through that same painful and long journey of preparing, putting all of that together. People are a huge thing, you know, to have you know, to go around that for six or seven days, you know, and to have the commitment of your friends and the community and to be able to get it right on the day and get the conditions right. Well, on the week, (laughs) I should say not the day, you know, (laughs) like there's nobody can just turn up and do that. You know, everybody has to go through that same journey. So there must be that level. You must obviously have a different level of respect than the rest of us do knowing what, what path you have to go down.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think anyone that has a go, even has a go at it, um, has my respect. Um, they've gone through a lot to get to that point. And anyone that gets close to breaking it, yeah, has even more of my respect. And, you know, I will always go out if I can and help someone else to, to break that record. Because, um, you know, that's the, that's the way it works. But, yeah, it's it's... It's nice that we're sort of a community that looks after each other as well and helps each other out to do these things.
1: You were quite open on um, during your blog after the fact on how difficult it was to actually recover after that. Um, you sort of struggled with chronic fatigue and things like that. No, I I struggled with cr- chronic fatigue, and I didn't do it. <laughs> so <laughs> I can only imagine. But it does it. You know, it does take a lot out of you, doesn't it? That whole because it's, it's not even 18 months either, is it? It's the amount of racing that you're doing, building up to that. And it's this, you know, this pinnacle that you get to in your career, your running career. Um, and it can actually wipe out your whole nervous system. It's, it's such a mammoth task.
0: Yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it was a bit strange because, you know, I took a couple of months off and I started beginning to feel all right. And then... I gradually got a bit worse and kept on going, coming and going. And it was about a year later that my body just said, I've had enough. Um, And looking back, it was a really sort of bad time. Um, Struggling really hard to work, um, sort of dizzy, couldn't sleep. Everything, Everything was hard. Getting out of bed sometimes was really hard. So, yeah, as you say, you push yourself so hard and things like that do happen. And then you have to realise that all my life I've been trying to push myself hard and push myself to the limit in these races. And eventually it dawned on me that I had to start being sensible and actually listening to my body. And when I was tired, took it easy. And if I was struggling a bit with work, just back off a bit. Um, And the body's amazing at recovering. It did gradually recover over the next year after that. But it took probably three years before I was fully happy with where I was again. Um, so it, it, it has taken a lot out of me. And
1: yeah. it might
0: not just be the way I'm right but it's sort of that was probably the final straw.
1: Yeah, no. And like I can relate to that, you know, <laughs> because you're pushing all your life. And, you know, I used to do crazy stuff like, you know, go for a 10 mile run, 100 mile cycle, and 10 mile run on a Saturday morning and think oh, this is great. Yeah. You know, and the next day you go out on the bike again for another 50 or 60 miles. And you're able to, because you've got youth on your side as well, you're able to push and push and push and push. And you're always looking to improve and to improve without really creating that space. And chronic fatigue really is your body saying, pulling the handbrake on and saying, whoop. You're not listening to me. I've given you loads of telltale signs. You will not listen. And because we've got through it for the last 10, 15, 20 years, we think we can keep on pushing. But your body takes over then and just goes, slams on the brake and goes, that's it. Which makes it very, very difficult then because what happened to me was I was going into races and I really had to let go of my ego because people didn't realize my threshold had come down so far that it wouldn't allow me to push in fact it wouldn't even let me get to the 80 90 percent of the way but what you do is you learn to manage and you learn eventually by the way it takes you (laughs) it takes you a couple of years to go okay 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 what are you trying to say to me and it's about me getting that balance between everything that's going on in life between work and family and finances and everything together the one thing that does help me is not racing in the mountains it's just going for a good hike in the mountains, a good fast hike, getting a few peaks in and, and allowing all that stuff to purge out. Because we're only human at the end of the day.
0: Exactly, yeah. I mean, that was what I learned as well. I sort of stopped racing. And, you know, when I did start racing, I just sort of went out and enjoyed myself. And I, I changed my mindset. So I suddenly started thinking, no, oh, instead of going out racing and pushing it really hard, all I want now is just to be able to go for a walk or a gentle jog in the fells. And if I can do that, I'm happy. And once I started doing that, I sort of thought, oh, I could maybe run a little bit more. But I was never never started pushing it again until I felt 100%. So as you say, it is a change of mindset. And it's looking after myself. So I think, as you say, in the 20s, you can do whatever you want. You can go out for a big night drinking and then go and run the next day and eat rubbish food when you're in the 40s and 50s you've got to
1: be a lot more careful you release an excellent book um there's no map in hell that actually talks about a lot of that pain through the rain, rain whites <laughs> and all the, all of the good things as well it's not all bad um and it's, it's a strange thing because it's, it's a book that i had listened to in audio when i just really get into mountain running and it's the same as the book feet in the clouds so I I've, I've just started reading that book again and it, it reads totally different to me now because I've been <laughs> out and running. So I'm actually looking forward to actually listening to your book again. There's No Map in Hell. How did you come up with that name?
0: That was quite interesting. Yeah, I was talking to a friend, um, went to their house and we were chatting about a book. Um, cause she knows a bit about writing books and the like. And I was sort of, our kids were there and they were playing a game on the computer. And one of them on the game has a section called Hell. And apparently they went into it and one of them said, there's no map in Hell. <laughs> and, my friend, and my friend said, that's a great title for a book. And I thought, yeah, it is actually. You know, it does fit in with me because maps have been my life since I was seven. as a seven-year-old period. And the way maps marks is interesting because it's like, if you if you go through hell there's no map there's no instructions to teach you how to get out of it you just have to work out for yourself how to get through that pain so i liked it on many sort of different ways Um, and the editor and the sort of publisher sort of liked it as well so
1: it stuck yeah no it definitely did stick you can get it on audio um, for anybody who hasn't listened to it yet in i think it's at amazon my audible i i listened to it on anyway so, I see out of all the things we just talked about there, which is there any which one of those stand out to be, you know, what you would call your best achievement?
0: I think it has to be Wayne Wright's. Uh, it's certainly the hardest thing I've ever done, um, and it pushed me further mentally and physically than ever before. So, yeah, that would be the thing. Yeah, I mean there are other things we said like Dragon's Back and Arms. They've all been great. Eight, but
1: I suppose they're all different in their own different when ways when I look
0: back now it's sort of they are but yeah that touching the moot all six and a half days after doing all the way yeah. <laughs> that still has that amazing emotional feel to me that um, nothing else will match sort of athletics wise
1: is there any, have you any aspirations left to take the lid off is there anything you would like to do
0: i um, I'm just you know, it's like five years, five, six years since I finished the game. <coughs> I'm probably now the fittest I have been since then. Um, so I am thinking about doing some other longer stuff again. Um, what it will be, I'm not sure. Um, I'd love to do the arm again. I've been doing that the last few years, but I don't think I've been at my peak. Um, so I'd love to do that again. Other mountain marathons, Like even thinking about maybe doing the Dragon's Back again at some point. They've added the sixth day down to the coast, the <laughs> yeah. south coast. So I've got to do the go back and do the whole thing.
1: Yeah, that's 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 going to be interesting this year, isn't it? Like 380 kilometers. Um, yeah. it's the right thing to do, I think.
0: I think so. That extra day is going to be quite a challenge.
1: Yeah, there's going to be a few DNS, <laughs> I reckon. Like, so
0: yeah, um, Steve, yeah, because before. Sorry, I was going to say before when you were doing the Dragon's Back, you got to the third day and you think you're nearly there, but now you get to the third day and it's going to be a lot harder. So yeah, a big, big, bigger, harder challenge.
1: What's one piece of advice you'd give anybody going to the into the Dragon's Back this year then?
0: Just get those hours in your legs, those long days, back to back days. You don't have to be running on them. Just get out there for eight hours one day, eight hours the next day in the mountains if you can yeah that's the thing that's going to get you through
1: um this year we started up as I was saying um guiding people in the mountains and I was doing six or seven hours on Saturday and six or seven hours on Sunday and we were just hiking and quite an easy piece for me obviously um being the guide and my legs had never been stronger come the end of the summer you know it's just that those long days didn't matter that I was going I wasn't going quickly just taking a lot of elevation just really slowly plenty of rest with the groups and my legs had really gained they, they were stronger at the end of that year and it was a real eye-opener for me on how because it was every weekend we we were doing saturday and sundays um yeah. and it was a real eye opener from when i thought i was doing a lot of training um to actually slow way down and actually going longer back to yeah. back. exactly because
0: if you're doing those long things you can you can actually get more distance and more climbing. than if you're running hard for two hours, it, it's getting that, those miles in your legs. Yeah, and, and it's not trashing yourself doing it.
1: And That's the key thing. I think, you know, you're not fatiguing your legs. that You can't go out the next day and have them to recover for three or four days. That word, that good word again, consistency. Steve, thanks very much. Um, <laughs> I know it took us a long time, but like as any true ultra runner, we, we overcome the problem, and kept going. And we've, we got to the end. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's a pleasure.
1: No, I appreciate that. Thanks for your time. Another classic episode. We have had a lot of experience on the podcast over the last few weeks. And next week will be no different as we were lucky enough to spend some time with Martin Cox, who, in my opinion, is one of the best coaches around at the minute. Two of his athletes smashed the Bob Graham last year, so make sure you don't miss out on next week's Double Bill episode. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, Mourn Mountain Adventures. We have some good alternatives to keep you in the mountains. And if you haven't already, why not check out the Inspiration Runners podcast on Facebook. Just before you go, I'd just like to give a shout out to Moira O'Sullivan, who has just released a new mountain running book, which is called A Quarter Glass of Milk. If you understand the pull of the mountains, then you will enjoy this book, which is being released on the 22nd of February. I'm really looking forward to grabbing a copy, so make sure you do too that's it from me so until next week stay safe and keep on moving